One of the great things about reading devotionals, particularly during the Lenten season, I think, is the fact that it introduces you to characters and theologians that you might not be familiar with. And one of those heroes of the faith that this past week introduced me to was a lady by the name of Padida Rambai. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, um, but she was from India. And she was an Indian poet, a scholar, a reformer, and she was particularly active at criticizing the Indian practice of child brides. She also threw herself into bringing the gospel to the people of India, translating the Bible into various languages. She became a Christian early on, but she describes what she had as a moving experience from having a knowledge of faith and the Christian faith to having a true, vivid belief in Jesus and who he was to her. And she credits that with being the energy and with the Holy Spirit empowering her to do the work she was called to. This is from this week's devotional, so some of you might have read it, but I think it bears reading again. She wrote this in 1883. Some years ago, I was brought to the conviction that mine was only an intellectual belief in which there was no life. God showed me how very dangerous my position was and what a wretched and lost sinner I was and how necessary it was for me to obtain salvation in the present and not in some future time. I repented long. I became restless and almost ill and passed many sleepless nights. I needed Christ, not just his religion. The Holy Spirit got a hold of me, and I could not resist him until I found salvation then and there. So I prayed earnestly to God to pardon my sins for the sake of Jesus Christ and let me realize that I had really gotten salvation through him. I believed God's promise and took him at his word. And when I had done this, my burden rolled away, and I realized that I was forgiven and freed from the power of sin. Padida went on to be a minister in refugee camps. She went on to found a school. She went on to take care of widows in India. And actually, those schools stand till this day, educating the poor and those that have been cast out of society. We celebrate her feast day on April 5th, upcoming, and that's the day that she died in 1922. You see, her story is that of so many people, and I think that her story is, in a way, what's going on in the gospel passage today between Mary and Martha and our Lord Jesus, because there's three resurrections going on today. You might have thought of Lazarus as the only one, but there's actually much, many more going on. And the three are the distant promise of the resurrection, seen in Martha and Mary's faith, the person of the resurrection, seen in Jesus Christ, and the life-altering hope 
of the resurrection, seen in the resurrection fulfilled with Lazarus being raised again and with Jesus headed for the cross. So let's look first together at the distant promise of the resurrection. And if you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 11, verse 21. John chapter 11, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's the first thing we notice about what Martha says to Jesus? Well, there's regret there, isn't there? There's regret and a mourning. And it's interesting because we didn't read the earlier part of this passage in John 11, where Jesus actually tells his disciples that he's delaying so that God can be glorified so that Lazarus actually dies. If you go back and you look at the beginning of John 11, we see that. Jesus says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And Martha, while regretful because she knows that Jesus could have saved Lazarus from dying, nevertheless goes on to profess her faith. Look at verse 22. Martha says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. That's not empty faith, right? That's not just a faith that thinks that Jesus has enough power to save Lazarus. It's a certain and sure faith, but it's a distant faith. It's a faith that trusts in the promises of God, but misses in some way what Jesus is trying to do in the here and now, immediately. I think that you and I probably struggle with this type of faith once in a while, if we're honest with ourselves. We know that Jesus has died for our sins. We know that we'll be raised with him. And yet it kind of floats around in the back of our mind, right? Our lives are pretty comfortable. And our joy here in this life is, well, not full, generally not empty, right? And so our temporal or temporary life is often so precious to us in relation to eternity that we push the resurrection to the back burner. We push it to the back of our minds. And it's often why we sin, actually. If you look, really dig into the heart of sin, what it is, is essentially grabbing the here and now, which is not in the will of God, in place of the promise of God, right? It's a type of doubt, a type of mistrust, a type of hedging our bets, that I'm going to sin here and now because it'll bring me the pleasure of here and now. It's a weak version of the resurrection that floats around in the back of our minds. And yet, the ordinary and mundane parts of our life, the busyness of our life, is that part of our life that Jesus wants to touch. It's part of who we are 
because ultimately it builds up into what we are as people. Look, this struggle isn't unique to us by any means, so don't be disheartened by it. St. Paul actually writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.1, then if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. But why does Paul have to tell the Christians that? It's because they're focused too much on the earthly things. And sometimes the here and now, the temporal life, looms large in its goodness or even in its weightiness, so much as to drive away the reality and the closeness of the resurrection from our minds. Sometimes even in the very event of death, right? I mean, funerals are times when, yes, we mourn the dead, and yet if we're mourning the dead and not looking forward to the resurrection, we've missed the point as Christians. It might seem insensitive to say so, but Jesus sees that Martha is seeing the resurrection too distantly in her answer to him. Look at his words to her back in John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know that he, that is Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe in this? So what's Jesus doing in his response to her? He's not being callous. He's not saying that Martha, death doesn't matter. But he's saying your version of the resurrection in your mind is far too distant. The man who is resurrection stands in front of you and is speaking to you. I am resurrection and life, Jesus says. If we look at the Greek behind this word, we actually see that that's what's going on. Ego emi he anastasias kai he zoe, Jesus says. I am, using that very same phraseology that comes in the Old Testament with the burning bush, I am the resurrection, and actually, if you want to get technical, Jesus says, I am the rising up, the Anastasius. I am the rising up, and I am the Zoe, the state of vitality, the state of all life. So I am the rising up and the state of all life, both in life and ethics. So Jesus is saying, I am all things that are created and are good, and I stand before you, Martha. St. Thomas Aquinas reflects on this passage and says, Now Christ is the total cause of our resurrection, both bodies and souls, and so the statement, I am the resurrection, indicates the cause. He's saying the entire fact that everyone will rise in their souls and in their bodies is due to me. And in fact, he's saying more. The very fact that you stand in front of me alive is due to me, says Jesus. And Jesus is all that vitality, that life, creation itself, the temporary and the eternal. Death 
is encapsulated by Christ himself. Death is powerless compared to Jesus Christ himself. And he stands before Mary, or before Martha here, and reminds her of that. For Jesus bringing someone back to life, the thing that doctors and medical professions struggle just to maintain is as easy as waking someone up from sleep. It's as easy as shaking someone from a nap. Jesus makes the comparison himself back in uh, verse 11. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. So you see, Jesus sees death as a nap. And that's the, the imminence, the closeness of the resurrection with which Jesus is confronting Martha here. For the Christian, that's true. That death itself is not the end game and certainly not the all-powerful thing. In fact, it's not even something that we should fear as the unknown. For the Christian, the loss of a loved one, while painful, is only a veil over that person. It's only a shadow separating ourselves from them. And yes, that separation is terrible and can be very painful, and yet it's not the end. I've referenced it before, but Leah and I continue to read through the Harry Potter series, and you're probably going to get tired of me using illustrations from it. But uh, what can I say? I like it. And, you know, I was in college when it came out, so I've never read it before. But we're in the, uh, we just finished the book, The Order of the Phoenix. And if you've read the series, you recall that um, Harry Potter and his friends are entering into the, the um, Department of Mysteries, the Department of Mysteries, uh, because Voldemort is trying to steal Harry Potter's prophecy. And I know that if you haven't read it, this doesn't make any sense to you. But just keep following along with me. Harry Potter's godfather, Sirius Black, dies in this book. And he dies in a very particular way, and I think it's really interesting that the author puts it this way. He actually dies from a curse and falls through an archway with a veil across it. And Harry Potter can hear from behind the veil the voices of people that have gone before, people that are on the other side of the veil in death. And so much so that he's tempted to walk through it himself, actually, and has to be held back. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that the phrase beyond the veil actually comes from Tyndale's translation of the Bible. And it's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant and the veil that hides the Ark of the Covenant and separates it from God's people. And so when someone goes behind the veil or if you've heard that phraseology used, think back to the fact that what we're saying is that person is no longer accessible to us, but is just as real and just as living and just as lively as we are, merely on the other side of the veil in the presence of God. That is not a death to be feared, is it? Of course, there's another death, the eternal death, that comes by not knowing Jesus. 
But for the Christian, that first death is not the one to be feared. Martha, however, is stuck in the here and now, in this particular moment of grief. And Jesus demonstrates that that distant idea of the resurrection that she has is not the fullness of the resurrection he wants to give her and Mary and the rest of the Jews. Look with me as we continue at verse 38. Jesus has talked with Mary at this point and repeated a similar version of what he said to Martha. And in verse 38, Jesus says, it says that Jesus is deeply moved again and came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Once again, where is Martha stuck? She's stuck in the overwhelming temporality of where she is, here, the here and the now, right? See, her, her, her idea of the resurrection is still too far off. She's not looking for Jesus to raise Lazarus. She's worried about Lazarus' smelling body, quite frankly. And yet Jesus continues to confront that. Look with me at verse 40 through 44. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Does Lazarus just stay in the tomb, dead? Does Jesus speak in vain? No, the very voice that said, let there be light, calls forth Lazarus and says, let there be light and life again. Lazarus, come out. And the man who came out, came out with his hands and feet bound in linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. The passage closes with those words of wonderful words of Jesus saying, unbind him, let him go. And we get the sense that Jesus is not just speaking to the Jews here. But what is Jesus speaking to? Death itself. Death itself. Unbind him, almost an unhand him. Let him go. You see, Jesus doesn't take death and sin lightly. He knows that he's on his way to the cross even at this point. He knows that he's going to die a terrible death, a terrible passion at this point. He set his heart towards Jerusalem. And yet Jesus also sees that it's part of God's plan to raise him again and to use his death to be that eternal sacrifice, to set us free from death, to command death to say, let them go. Jesus is the resurrection, not some distant hope, but the resurrection here and now 
Which brings us to the third point, the third resurrection. In Jesus is resurrection and life-altering hope. In Jesus is resurrection and life-altering hope, a type of hope that drives us to be changed and to change things around us. Everything is brought into proper perspective when we see the imminence or the closeness of the resurrection in Jesus. St. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, and 58, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, notice, that's the statement of theology. Now here comes the life-altering hope. Therefore, verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's a curious thing to say, isn't it? That your labor is not in vain, that what you're doing in the here and now, in the everyday, is not insignificant to the eternal. You see, some people think of the resurrection so distantly that they just kind of walk along in this life and, well, eventually I'll die and I'll be with God and the eternal and the by and by. I mean, I love that hymn, but it's not a great theological statement in the sweet by and by, right? The reality is that Jesus calls us to work on behalf of the kingdom, and that is not in vain. In his book, Surprised by Joy, Bishop N.T. Wright writes this. On this very passage, he says, Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music, inspired by the love of God and delight in the word of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support, for one's fellow human beings, for that matter, for one's non-human fellow creatures, and of course, every prayer, spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God and into the new creation that God will one day make. You see, we're not pouring our lives into a world that's just going to be obliterated. Oh yes, it will be remade. It will be renewed. But what we do in the here and now matters because of the imminence of the resurrection. We're not pouring into something fruitlessly, needlessly, or in vain. So in closing, we've been using this time during Lent through reflection and self-perception to bring discipline in ourselves and to listen to the Holy Spirit, to unearth things, to correct habits. Sometimes that's been painful and challenging, hasn't it? To rule our unruly passions, as we prayed in the collect, our affections as humans, to put those under the control of Christ. But we do this to help embrace in ourselves Christ-likeness, but also to be refined to the better service of our Lord to be better agents of his kingdom. 
Colossians 3.17, Paul writes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And what's the, what is the reason for this theologically? The resurrection. Both the general resurrection at the end of all time and the imminent resurrection of Christ alive in you. The Holy Spirit working in you here and now. In her wisdom, the church places the gospel passage of Lazarus here before Passion Sunday, before Palm Sunday. Well, today is Passion Sunday, but it's before Palm Sunday next week where we actually read about Jesus going to the cross on our behalf, about Jesus being betrayed with the Last Supper, the cross, his death, his descent to the dead. And we go into that deep fasting of Passion Tide. Jesus wants Martha and Mary to display their empty hope in a distant resurrection in order that he may fill it with himself. And he wants the same for us. He wants us to bring to him our distant, half-believing, empty hopes in who he is as the resurrection and the life so that he can give us his very self and say, I am the resurrection for you, for the here and now, and for all eternity. He did this with Pedita Rambe in the last century, and he wants to do it with you and I as well in this one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound truth that you are resurrection and life, and that when we're united to you, we need not fear death. We need not wonder, but that we can live fully here and work in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would continue as we go here into the final weeks of Lent to stir up our hearts, to crush the things that need to be crushed, to unearth the things that need to be unearthed, to breathe your living spirit on the things that need life breathed into them. Lord, make us that new creation. In Jesus' name, amen.